WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. This episode contains discussion about gun violence and mass shootings specifically in schools. This can be disturbing for some listeners. School shootings as well as mass shootings are something that have become more prevalent in today's society, especially within the last 30 years. Today we're here to talk to Kaylin Sanders about her research on school shootings. Kaylin, can you please introduce yourself for us? Hi everyone, my name is Kaylin Sanders and I am a recent graduate of The Ohio State University with my bachelor's in criminal justice and sociology and I'm an incoming doctoral student at Michigan State University in their criminal justice PhD program. Last summer, I participated in the Summer Research Opportunities Program here at Michigan State University, and I worked with Dr. Steven Shermack in the School of Criminal Justice on a project relating to school shootings and looking at different things relating to the schools as well as the perpetrators to see if the shootings were more likely to be fatal or non-fatal. Nice to meet you, Kaylin. First off, welcome back to Michigan State for your PhD. I remember being in the Schrapp program, which convinced me that this was the place to be for my research. In regards to your research, what are some common misconceptions that people have about school shootings? Thank you. I think the first thing that people have misconceptions about are what exactly a school shooting is. They know it's a shooting that happens at a school, but It doesn't have to be a mass shooting. Like it could just be no one gets shot, but there was a gun fired. One person gets shot and injured. It could be any number of people. It doesn't have to be like a mass shooting like you would see all over the news, like Columbine, Parkland, things like that to be considered a school shooting. And then along with that, there's a lot of misconceptions about the actual perpetrators of school shootings. So Peter Langman, he's a psychologist that has done a lot of work on school shooters and mass violence. And the book that he wrote in 2015 examined a bunch of different school shooting cases from uh, different grade levels all the way up to like college. And he identified some of the misconceptions that people have. And one of them is that most school shooters are victims of bullying, which that's actually false. Most of the school shooting people were not victims of bullying, and that still kind of stands true today. And in some cases, they even were the bullies rather than were the ones getting bullied. As well as that, since school shootings are very broad and, like I said, they don't have to be a mass shooting to occur, people sometimes get it confused with mass shootings and how a lot of times perpetrators of mass shootings are white males. That's not the same for school shootings, even though that's what we see a lot in the media. There's no really like one racial or ethnic group that you could say is like the main people committing these acts of violence in schools. And then the other thing would be that most school shooters are not loners. A lot of them have friends, maybe not like a ton, but a lot of them do have friends. And that's something that you don't really hear people talking about is they usually paint them as people who are loners and were bullied. But both of those things are pretty false. Wow, those are a lot of misconceptions that I haven't heard about before. You had said that your research had specifically focused on fatal versus non-fatal school shootings. What are you exactly studying? Is one of them more prevalent than the other? So I'm really not looking at is one more prevalent than the other. 
I'm more so looking at the differences between the two to see if there are things relating to the shooter or the school that can be used to figure out ways where we could turn fatal incidents into non-fatal or obviously prevent them from happening at all. But it's not really about which one is happening more. But I would say that in general, you're going to see on the news the ones where people are dying, especially if it's multiple people that pass away in these shootings. But it's more likely to have lower fatalities or even non-fatal shootings rather than the ones that you would typically see. Something people often think about is how do people prevent school shootings from happening? But they rarely actually address the underlying issues that are within the system. What are some common attributes that school shooters have between the fatal and non-fatal shooters, and how can schools address these attributes that they have? In my research, what I found was that when the shootings were more likely to be fatal, the shooter was often older. I believe in the non-fatal cases, the average age was about 18 And then in the more fatal cases, it was about 22. But also it's important to remember that within the cases that we were looking at, not all of the shooters were actually students. Some of them were people who worked at the school or different things like that. And along with that, if the shooter had failed a grade, that made the shooting more likely to be fatal. If they had some sort of psychological issues, and that's very general psychological issues, that did increase the likelihood of the shooting being fatal as well as if the shooter was a gang member. Now, as for the shooting being more likely to be non-fatal, if the shooter had at least one good friend that did decrease the likelihood of a fatal shooting. So with all those things being said, just because someone has one of those attributes or things like that, that doesn't mean that they're at risk for becoming a school shooter. But it's important to know those different types of characteristics for when you're trying to make like threat assessments For instance, like I know the FBI has like a school shooter risk assessment. So by having research that shows what some of these common character traits are, you can have those in the risk assessment just as kind of markers. But if a student fails a grade or has psychological issues, that doesn't mean that they're going to shoot up the school. I think one of the big things that people need to pay attention to and the main thing, honestly, because most shooters do this before their attack is they kind of the term is called leakage. And what that means is they'll kind of like hint at what they're planning or what they're thinking about doing at the school, things like that. So I think that's definitely something that people need to pay attention to and take more seriously. Even if you think someone is joking when they say, oh, I'm going to shoot up the school or I'm going to do this. The research shows that a lot of shooters actually have done something like that or said something like that and shown a sign of what they're planning. So it's better to take it seriously now rather than you heard something before and didn't say anything about it. And then a shooting really does happen at the school. So I would say the number one thing to do is just pay attention to what you hear, what you see and all those different things, because most shooters did kind of hint at what they were going to do before they committed their attack. At least one person knew about a shooter's plans in 80% of cases, and at least two people knew in 60% of cases that the shooter was planning something. So it's not uncommon for them to kind of hint at what they're going to do. A lot of things you said stood out to me. Something that really spoke to me was how you said that most shooters will have like leakage where they'll tell people of their plans and stuff like that. That reminds me of an episode that we had about youth suicide awareness, where they were saying that sometimes whenever people are about to commit suicide, that they'll 
basically like say some of their plans or kind of give hints that it's about to happen. But it doesn't seem like many people take it seriously or that they might not believe it. I feel like some sort of training or awareness will really help with these situations because some people don't know how to react whenever someone says it, so they might just laugh it off and say, oh, they were joking, and then later realize that they weren't. Is there some sort of training that they give students and faculty and staff to help them be more aware and prepared for these situations? Yeah, so I can really only speak to my experiences with trainings that I've been in and trainings that I've seen. I'm not sure what they're doing now at the grade levels in schools, but I know like when I was in high school, we would have the drills where we pretended a shooter was coming into our school or was like a student from the school, whichever one. And the plan, like in that situation, since it was planned, it was very routine in a sense. And I mean, when you know if this was a real incident, it's not going to be like that because you're probably not expecting it to happen when it would. But it's just the things like, everyone hide in a corner, lock the doors, et cetera, et cetera, things like that. I also participated in the active shooter threat training at the police department back where I went to high school at in my hometown. One part of it was like kind of a scenario type activity where they had actual people pretending to be the people in the school. Then they had like someone playing the shooter and then they had the police actually doing what they would do if this was a real situation. And then other parts of it were like training them on reaction techniques, kind of. So it was like almost kind of like a video game, I would describe it. But they had fake weapons, but they were connected to this system. Scenarios that would play and they had to react to see. One of the scenarios was like a school shooting. It was a student who was doing the shooting. So the shooter's running in the crowd, like trying to escape. So no one knows that they're the shooter. And you have to be kind of quick to identify that, oh, that's the person with the gun and they're running away, kind of scenarios like that. And it showed how when the police get there, they have different kind of stations. So you have the people who are coming into the school and, you know, the police officers are kind of going in waves because if it's a school shooting, it's going to be more than just that local police department. They're going to bring surrounding area police departments, SWAT teams, things like that. And they also have stations outside for medics. They have people going in while other people are trying to secure the building. Then there's going to be other officers, things like that, coming in to help get people who are injured out and help clear rooms. It's a lot of training for the actual event. But I think where things could be better is kind of more preventative measures because those things are kind of reactive and you need those trainings. But again, threat assessments, if you have those in place, if you're training the staff and the students to understand what these kind of things look like before they happen. For example, like I said, with the leakage and what that may look like, even if it sounds like a joke and you think it is, I think that's definitely something where they can improve because we didn't really get that when I was in school. And from the people I know who are still in like grade school, they're not getting that either. It's just the kind of drills where if someone comes into the school this is what we'll do. You know, we'll lock down the classrooms. We'll do this. And you see schools taking a lot of precautions with different safety measures like cameras, metal detectors, things like that. But research has either not been done on any of those things to see how they're effective or if they're effective at all. Or in the case of something like metal detectors, there's been a lot of research that has shown metal detectors don't stop anything from happening. A lot of money is also wasted on things that are not shown to be effective or that there's no research backing that this will help anything. Yeah, I agree, Kaylin. It's like you mentioned, a lot of these actions are just reactive to situations that happened in the past. 
You mentioned how you got to experience how police respond to these school shootings during some of their trainings. But at the same time, there have been calls to remove police from schools. What do you believe is probably the best solution to deal with school shootings when they're happening? Research has shown that school resource officers are not really effective at all. And I also saw that in my project, there wasn't any significance for resource officers decreasing the likelihood of a fatal shooting. And also there's issues with that because as we saw in the Parkland school shooting, uh, the school resource officer ran out of the school because he was scared. So that's not going to help. So when you look at things like that, are resource officers really necessary in schools? I personally do not think so, but that could be a whole nother topic. So when these incidents are happening, I think once the police are called, they need to be getting into the building immediately because when they get there, they don't know if the shooter is still shooting. They don't know if he's alive, if he's dead, etc. But regardless of that, they need to get into the school immediately because their response time is the difference between a shooting being fatal or non-fatal, honestly. And when you look at school shootings like Columbine, there's a book by Dave Cullen, and he dives really deeply into that school shooting and all the kind of issues with it. And a big issue was the response time of the police. If they had went into that building earlier, they could have saved a whole lot of people from dying. But because their response times were so slow, they didn't go into the school for like a really long time once they actually got on the scene. So response time is a big deal. Also, I think having schools have a kit in each classroom with like tourniquets or different things like that, that can help. Like if someone does get shot in a classroom, they have something that they can at least put on it to attempt to stop the bleeding or different things like that while they wait for medics. Installing different type of locks on the doors. I know that at OSU, they did that in a lot of our buildings. They designed these different type of locks on the doors that allowed it to lock like really easily and simply. So They did that in a few of the buildings there. So different things like that, it's not necessarily going to prevent it from happening per se, but it can decrease the likelihood of fatalities. And I think obviously we want to stop these incidents from happening altogether, but do we think that that's going to happen? Honestly, no. Though we also need to look at what can we do for when they happen to make them hopefully not fatal at all or less casualties. Because the way that I look at it is if you can save one person, then that's something that you need to do by implementing that safety measure or whatever it may be. And I think again, I go back to the leakage because it's just a really huge part of this issue. So again, just creating some type of way for people to be able to anonymously submit threats or different things like that. That's just a really big, a really big help for this issue. Because once the incident is starting, honestly, it's hard to say what could they do once it starts. Yeah, I remember when the Parkland shooting happened a couple of years ago. In fact, I knew someone that personally and unfortunately passed away from the Parkland shooting. He had died a hero and he had saved a lot of students, which just flat out angers me how much cowardice that resource officer showed during that tragedy. It was a very sad event that still affects our community where we come from back at home. Now, we're here in Michigan and you did this research here at Michigan State University, but you were referring to data in Florida. It makes me curious now, where were you gathering your data from and were you looking at all states in the United States or was this a global study? Yeah, so my mentor that I had in the SHOP program, he, along with two other professors, one from John Jay College in New York City and the University of Texas, 
they got funding to build a database of school shootings from 1990 to 2016. And these are only school shootings within the U.S. And they're also not including any shootings that happened at like colleges, universities, things like that. So just K through 12 school shootings. And they were all over the U.S. So the data that I looked at came from all 50 states, essentially. I'm not sure exactly like which states specifically had the most or different things like that. But any large like school shooting that was famous but that happened between 1990 and 2016 would have occurred during then. So Parkland wouldn't have been counted in there. But I do remember that was one of the school shootings that I really vividly remember just because of how old I was. I was, you know, it was only a few years ago. So I was older when I watched that happen. And I remember where I was when they were talking about that it was happening. I remember where I was. I remember seeing that and being like, wow, I don't remember ever witnessing something like this, like and remembering it the way that I do then. And I definitely can understand how that will affect the whole community for forever, really, because I'm from Dayton, Ohio, and we just had a mass shooting there last summer. Almost, it'll be almost a year from now, next month. Fortunately, the people that I knew that were there, they survived and made it out. But for some of them, it was a really close call. But I definitely understand kind of the ripple effects that these incidents have, just aside from the people who are directly affected and like survived the shootings. The Columbine shooting happened in 1999, but the data you looked at dates back to 1990. Has there been an increase in fatal school shootings, or is there just a larger coverage that news stations are doing on school shootings? And also, how have the trends changed throughout time for both fatal and non-fatal shootings? I believe the main thing that we see nowadays more news coverage of these events. I will say that Columbine was kind of the game changer. It wasn't the first school shooting ever and it also wasn't the first mass shooting ever but because of the location I don't know if you guys are familiar with Colorado but where it took place is like a suburb of Denver Colorado called Littleton it's a suburban area so when people think shootings they don't think of shootings happening in the suburbs so for a shooting of that magnitude to happen in a community that it did it kind of shocked everyone and people were like oh wow like this can happen to us too. And I think the fact that it was done by students that were seniors in high school, so they're about 17, 18, but that's still not that old. So I think that was another shock about the shooting as well, was that it was done by students in the school. So I would say that after Columbine, that was kind of like the game changer for everything. And when the news really started reporting on these events a lot and making them, obviously they're big deals, but really blowing it up to the magnitude where it seems like this is happening all the time everywhere. The data shows when a mass shooting happens and a mass shooting at a school, the news is going to take that and run with it, which can be problematic for a lot of reasons. But yeah, over time, uh, I can't say I'm not sure if the amount has gotten higher or lower or remained steady, but it's mainly the news coverage that's making it seem like this is happening all the time. And again, like I believe we kind of referenced this earlier in the conversation that you're not seeing on the news like when school shootings happen and there's no injuries or it's just one or two people injured and things like that. Those are the school shootings that are more commonly happening in general rather than these mass school shootings where it's five or four plus people that are being murdered. I could see how the media could be a problem with this. Like you were saying, if it's not a fatal or severe shooting, they might not even cover it. I am wondering, however, what happens after the shooting? 
if the shooter is still alive afterwards, what happens to them? They'll go through the whole criminal justice process of like courts, trial, all those different things. And depending on the severity of the shooting, like if it's a mass school shooting, for instance, the trials might take a little bit longer than if it's not. But usually you're going to see people in the larger scale shootings, they are going to end up going to prison for a pretty long time. I, I haven't seen anybody receive the death penalty or anything like that, but it is pretty long prison sentences. As for the more like the cases that we wouldn't really hear about, those type of school shootings, I believe that those punishments may end up being less severe from what I have seen, but also it kind of goes on a case-by-case -case basis because the states are different in how they handle certain crimes. It would also depend on the shooter's age, injuries, deaths, different things like that. So it's more on a case-by-case -case basis, but as far as if we're talking about mass school shootings, you can pretty much bank on the fact that they will be serving a pretty lengthy prison sentence. As you said earlier, school shootings have been happening for a while now, unfortunately. You have this extensive data set, but how is the data being vetted, and how do you draw any conclusions from the data? Where the database gets its data from, it all comes from open sources. I did two cases when I was working with my mentor, so that involved me searching them up on the internet, trying to find the local news reports on it. If it was a big case, there'd be national reports, so you're looking for news, radio, TV, any type of coverage on the case, legal documents, all those different things. And then we have different, I guess you could say different variables, different characteristics for the actual shooter and then the school that we're looking for. So we're also looking at school websites, school documents, layouts of the school, all those different things. And then we're filling in that information about the perpetrator, about the school. So for example, if they're giving us the perpetrator's age and race slash ethnicity, we're filling in that information. If we find something or a few sources that talk about the perpetrator's family, family history, then we're filling in related information to that, however it fits within the variables about the family that we're looking at. That's how the database gathered its information. And granted, since it was open source, that is a little bit difficult when you're talking about shootings that happened in the 1990s and before. Like A lot of this information was really publicized and easy to find. And another roadblock with that for the schools was that sometimes schools close, schools change their name. So that made it a little bit more difficult. But the database was still being built when I was doing my internship. And now, almost a year later, or actually a year later, the database is almost done. So the data is better now. It's cleaner, all those different types of things. So I would love to kind of redo the study again to see if my results are the same or different, seeing as how we have a stronger database now. Now, you've told us a lot about the characteristics of these perpetrators, but we haven't heard much about the schools. For example, I'm wondering if the area that the school is in or the type of income or if it's a private or public school and stuff like that, does that affect the chances of a school shooting from happening? I did look at the different types of schools. So I looked at pre-K to eighth grade, high school, and then vocational schools. And I didn't find any significance with any of those variables about increasing the likelihood of a fatal shooting or decreasing the likelihood of a fatal shooting. So the main things that we looked at instead were actual kind of like variables of safety measures within the school or different, I guess you could call them like programs or things that the school implemented. 
for example, if a school had a anonymous report system, and it's important to note that when looking at these variables for the school, they looked at them before the shooting and also after. But for my research, I only looked at the before because I wanted to see how that affected the shooting. For example, if a school had like an anonymous report system before the shooting, it actually did show that it was still more likely for the shooting to be fatal. And for all the school variables I looked at, which included if the school had security cameras, bullying prevention programs, and other things like that, the likelihood of a fatal shooting was higher than a non-fatal one. The only thing that I did find that decreased the likelihood of a fatal shooting was if they had a teacher share system, which that would be where teachers could share kind of like things that they've heard or things that they've noticed about students or just different things in general with each other to kind of see that that would prevent something from happening or make other staff aware of what's going on in the schools. That was the only thing that showed a decrease in the likelihood of a shooting being fatal, which was really interesting because that's kind of the opposite of what I expected to see. And I do think that if I were to redo the study now, I may get different results for the school variables just because, like I said, the database is cleaner and different things like that. So based on the way that, like I said before, these shootings happened all the way back from 1990. So when you're trying to find these schools, a lot of them still exist, but then also some of them have closed, changed names. So it's hard to see what the school would have been like back when this shooting took place, if we can even see that at all. And a lot of times we can't. So that also kind of affects how the school variables play out to see if they actually had an effect or not. Right now, we're in an unprecedented time where students had to take learning online this past spring due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's unlikely to know for sure what's going to happen this fall. But after the pandemic is finished, do you think we'll see the same annual patterns in school shootings like before the COVID-19 era? Unfortunately, I do think that we will just because it's kind of a part of the nature of the society that we live in now. I don't know if I can say, do I think there'll be more? Do I think there'll be less? I don't know, but I will not be surprised when school shootings start happening again, just because I don't want to say it's inevitable because I do think that there are ways that we can prevent these from happening or at least, like I said, make them less fatal. But it almost seems inevitable to a certain extent that they would just stop happening altogether. So I definitely think that when schools reopen, they will be occurring. It will be sad to see that they would be occurring again, but hopefully we can find an effective way to prevent school shootings. Now, very early in the interview, you had mentioned that you were over here at Michigan State University in 2019 for the SHRAP program, and that you're coming back over here for your doctoral degree in criminal justice. Do you know if you'll be continuing this research project for your thesis, or will you be working on something else? Yeah, so I will be continuing this project, but I also have two research interests, and they're both in the field of criminal justice, but kind of two different spectrums. The one is on like school shootings, mass shootings, and school violence. The other one deals with people who are incarcerated. So I have two different advisors. So I'm going to be working on a project relating to that, as well as continuing on my research from the summer as well. 
I did receive the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship for a study that related to school shootings and looking at the more physical characteristics of a school. So the actual kind of like structure of the school, how many stairs they have, different things like that to see how kind of the physical characteristics of a school play a role in a school shooting. So that's definitely a project that me and my advisor are going to start working on, hopefully within the near future. It's great that you were able to obtain the NSF Graduate Fellowship. For those that don't know, this fellowship is one of the most competitive in the country, and it'll set up Kaylin with three years of funding to start her off with her PhD research. So congratulations, Kaylin. Thanks again for also joining us this morning to talk to us about your work on school shootings during your internship here last summer. The sci House is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The sci can be found online on sci and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on sci or if you have any questions, you can contact us at sci at impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.